0: Father, may your grace be upon your word. Let us know Christ who died for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. If we could experience... All that God wants for us. What do you think God would give us? If if we could. If we received all that God wants us to know. And have and experience. What do you think that would look like? That's not just a. A. Um, a question for theologians to banter around. It's a significant question because it speaks to the very nature and character of God, who God is, what God does, what God is looking for. And and it's significant for us to understand the character of God because in one way or another, we all struggle to embrace and to understand the truth about God. And our struggle leads us to some distorted images of God that typically are described in terms of what God takes away from us or what God refuses to give us or the kinds of demands that God places upon us. So you have some people who see God as sort of an ultimate federal agent who's coming to us with a warrant ready to take us downtown. Or some people see God as an unrelenting taskmaster whose demands upon us are impossible for us to do. And yet he expects us to do them. Some people see God as the great dream crusher who is continually squashing all of the great dreams and plans that we have for life. Some people see God as distant, uninvolved, uncaring about our irrelevant, puny lives. I suspect that our distorted images of God, and actually all of our images of God, might well be summed up in in the statement that one theologian made. He said, at some point, we have to decide... Whether the God we worship is a generous God or a stingy God. And I have a feeling by the way we talk, by the things that we think about God, by the way we live, we are giving other people the impression that God is anything but generous. It's to this view of God as stingy and demanding and distant that we turn back to Isaiah 53. The prophet paints a very distinct view of God that is highlighted in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds... We are healed. When I read that verse, which is in the context of the chapter and all of Isaiah's prophecy and all of Scripture for that matter, I find that God is looking for us, wants to give us healing and peace. God's plan and design for his creatures is that we would experience healing and peace. Now, the word for healing is typically used to describe someone who is ill and and is now well. In fact, the medical profession in the Old Testament are called healers. It's used to describe other things as well. It describes Elijah's action in rebuilding or healing the altar of God on which the sacrifices are made. The psalmist talks about God's merciful forgiveness as healing. And God... God healing our emotions and the broken heartedness that we experience. And God says that he will heal our land. It is about all of God's creation, restoring it, making it well. The word for peace is shalom. Shalom is wholeness, making things right that are not right. Justice, righteousness, salvation. There's the completeness to that word. Shalom is the, is the harmony and health that God intends for the earth that has been corrupted by sin. Shalom is central to our prayer that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That our world would experience all that God intends for us. Shalom is the word that describes relationships that are right that are connected, that are where they should be. And to experience God's shalom is to experience all that is wrapped up in God's original and full design for his people, joy, love, mercy, grace, healing. God designs all of his creation to be whole and pure. And the only reason it isn't is because of us. Because we choose to hate instead of to love. Because we choose to think more of ourselves than of God and others. Because we believe that we know better than God how to find life and peace and blessing. Our sins corrupt all that God has designed for his people and for his creation. And the natural result of that, if we were in God's shoes, would be to say, "All right, I'm going to have to punish you people. I'm going to put an end to this. I've had enough, I'm going to wipe you all out, off the map. And that brings us back to Isaiah 53. Because the prophet's trying to help us understand that the coming of the servant, what we believe is the coming, the prophecy of the coming of Jesus, means that healing and peace and wholeness are offered to the world through him. Now, we're not going to experience the completeness of healing and peace until Jesus returns and restores completely His kingdom. There will always be cracks in it because of our human nature and because we live in a fallen world. But when Jesus restores His creation, we will know it in its fullness. But even still... God wants us to experience peace and healing far more than most of us can really imagine. Far more than we even desire for ourselves. And in that promise, we see that we worship a God who is generous, not stingy. But even more, God is so generous and so enamored that we receive his fullness of blessing and life that he is willing to suffer pain and agony and punishment that is rightfully ours to endure. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Now, I think by and large, if you've been around the church much, if you, you know much about what it, the scriptures or Christianity, I think most of us would probably say, yes, I believe Jesus died for us. And yet we continue to wrestle with truly accepting and believing and living that truth. Something in our human nature's DNA can't quite believe that Jesus on the cross has done it all. I think one of our struggles is that we are fairly confident that God will will forgive our small sins, as we categorize them. You know, I got angry. I said things to a person yesterday that hurt them. Not good, but, you know, God will forgive that. But the big stuff, I'm not so sure. We're fairly confident that God will forgive us when we initially come to him. But once you come to God and, you, and you're connected to Him and your life is in Him, then you really better clean up things because, you know, you ought to be over that stuff by now. Sin shouldn't be a part of your life anymore. And I think we wrestle believing that there is a limit to God's offer of forgiveness. Because so much of our lives on this earth are, are built around this premise of limited forgiveness. Our justice system has a lot to do with limited forgiveness. The three-strike law. You commit the same crime three times, you're done. You're going to spend most, if not the rest of your life, behind bars. We get so impatient with people who are still wrestling with that problem, still wrestling with that addiction. Of course, it's something that we don't wrestle with, so how come they can't get over that? And we are told again and again... That if we were truly spiritual, then that issue, that sin, shouldn't bother us anymore. And in that context, our natural response is to believe that God's offer of forgiveness, that the suffering of Christ for us has some kind of expiration date on it. And if we aren't careful, we will push God over the edge because something within us believes that really God is more stingy than generous. I was talking about this with someone uh, earlier this week and they said, you know, they started talking to me about something that connected to this. It's a little bit odd, but I think it made sense. We're talking about in in basketball, one one of the rules of basketball is that you can call a technical foul. An official can call a technical foul on a player or a coach. And it's usually not because of action going on on the court. It's a character issue. You know, they use foul language or they, they spoke too abusively to an official or to another player or an unsportsmanlike conduct. Those kinds of things can get you a technical foul. And if you get two technical fouls in one game, you're rejected. Now, the, the professional basketball league, NBA, was having a lot of trouble with players getting a lot of technical fouls. So they started implementing some rules about that. First of all, they fine them when they get a technical foul. I think it's $1,000 a game or $1,000 a foul, which to us, wow, that's a lot. It's probably not so much to them with the salaries they make. But, you know, that you keep they keep letting them get technical fouls. But once you get the 15th technical foul in a season, you're suspended for a game. And if you get a couple more, you're suspended a couple more games, and that keeps going forward. And this person said to me, you know, there there is something in there that maybe we have that same kind of mindset about God... God will keep forgiving us for a while. God will be generous with his mercy as long as it doesn't go on too long. There is a point where we cross the line and God starts handing out suspensions to us. Because deep down inside, we worry that maybe God is more stingy than generous. So because of this warped view of God, we live with a very small image of the cross. And because we have a very small image of the cross, we end up having a small image of God. Now, I don't think any of us or few of us would stand up and say, I don't think Christ's sacrifice is enough. But sometimes we live our lives in a way that really is declaring that. So we feel a need to convince God to forgive us. If I just do this, maybe God will forgive me. Or we feel a need to prove our worth as children of God. We feel a need to cover our bases by finding our own path to peace and healing because we're not quite sure that God's really going to give us that. And so we talk about I need to be successful or I need to be spiritually strong, which we do. Or I need to be pure. If I was just more involved or more committed or less selfish or less sinful... If I share Christ with more people, if I work harder, if I'm busier for God, then maybe God will look on me with more favor. And as important as some of those things are. They're not going to make God look on us with more favor. Because the truth is, God could not look on us with more favor than he does. Because he is more generous than any of us could imagine. God's love never ends, never stops. His grace is always on us. And our struggle sometimes has to do with forgetting the prophet's words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Martin Luther said, sometimes when you read the scriptures, the most important thing are the pronouns. That's certainly true in this case. All throughout this chapter, and particularly this verse, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds, we are healed. There's nothing here about measuring up to God's standard. Nothing here about earning enough points to be forgiven by God. There's nothing here about being good enough. It's simply the grace of God in Christ who takes upon himself all that is rightfully ours to receive. Because God is generous, never stingy. Now Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 13 about love. And we, we enjoy talking about that passage and we see it as a way of understanding how we connect to each other. One of the ways in which Paul describes love is that it keeps no record of wrongs. And if that's what Paul is hoping, we, how we live with each other, how much more our eternal heavenly father, the eternal lover is going to treat us not keeping a record of wrongs forgiving us offering grace to us always about everything in every moment this is the heart of the table around which we gather today sometimes people say to me i don't i don't really feel worthy to take communion today the honest truth is none of us are worthy If it's about being worthy, let's just walk out. Because there's not one person here, not one of us, that is worthy to come to this table. But this isn't a table about worthiness. It's about grace. This is not about being good enough. It's about acknowledging that Jesus Christ has given his life for us. That he has done for us what we could never do in our best moments. And we simply come because we desire the grace that Jesus is offering. And we desire to live in that grace. So when we come and eat the bread and drink the cup. It's not about how good we are or how bad we are. It's about simply opening our lives to the grace of Jesus Christ whose punishment brought us peace, whose wounds brought us healing, and recognizing there is no other way, no other way to peace and healing but the cross. Heavenly Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we fell into sin, and when we became subject to evil and death, in the fullness of time, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, your only son, to redeem the world. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. and Being born in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He took upon himself our sin And our death. And he offered himself a perfect sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. By his life, he broke the power of sin. By his death, he conquered death. And by his resurrection, he gave us eternal life. Remembering all that you have done for us in Christ in his suffering and death, in his resurrection and ascension, as we look forward to his coming again in glory, we ask you to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. As we come and receive your grace, send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts, that in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, we may know the fullness of, of all that you desire for each of us through Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. and Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to distribute the the bread and the cups to you in your rows today. First, the bread will be distributed and it's passed. Please take one and hold on to it until all have received a piece of bread and then we will eat together. And uh, we will do the same with the cups. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. Maybe the first time you have ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open and open, desiring to receive the grace of God in your life through Christ, then we invite you to take these gifts from our loving, generous, gracious Heavenly Father.